Welcome to our Exchanges at Goldman Sachs Markets Update for Thursday, July 2nd. Each week, we check in with a leader across the firm to get a quick take on what they're watching in markets. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at Goldman. And my guest today is Richard Ramsden, who runs the Financials Group in Global Investment Research and has primary oversight of the universal and large cap bank sector for Goldman Sachs research. Richard covers a lot of the big banks, but we should note that, of course, he doesn't cover Goldman Sachs itself. Richard, great to have you on the program. Jake, thank you for having me. So late last week, Richard, the Federal Reserve announced the results of its latest stress test of American banks. The approach this time was a little different than previous stress tests. What did the Fed do that was different and why? So, you know, this is a test that's uh, been in place now for about a decade. And what they did is they made a change this year, which has really been a long time coming, whereby the Fed, I think, has tried to remove themselves a little bit from the minutia of banks setting dividends and buybacks. So under the prior test, the way it worked is the banks would be given a scenario by the Federal Reserve that typically would reflect a period of very severe economic contraction. The banks would take that scenario, they would run it, they would figure out what they thought their losses would be under that scenario. And based on that, they would come up with a capital return ask. So they would set what they wanted to ask for in terms of both dividends and buybacks over the next 12 months. And the Fed would look at the results of that analysis, they would run their own test. And in essence, they would give the bank either a pass or a fail. So the bank would either get permission to return that capital or they wouldn't. Starting this year, the way the test works is the banks are still given a scenario. They run the scenario. But instead of asking for a predetermined amount of buybacks and dividends, what they're given is a capital ratio that they need to maintain over the course of the next 12 months. And provided the bank is above that capital ratio, in theory, they've got a lot more degrees of freedom in terms of their ability to either buy back stock or in increase dividends or grow their balance sheet. So as I said, I think it really, the purpose of it was, I think, 10 years after the global financial crisis, the Fed wanted to take a step back from being involved in day-to-day decisions around buybacks and dividends, but they didn't want to allow banks to increase systemic risk and become over-levered in the event of a downturn. So the stress test this year was designed really before COVID hit hard. How did the Fed handle the fact that their hypothetical scenario was somewhat preempted by a real-life stress test? So this test was set in January of this year. So the scenario was given to the banks in January. At that point, COVID was obviously a risk. But obviously, at that point, I don't think anybody could have really had any idea as to just how damaging from an economic perspective uh, COVID uh, was going to become, both within the US, but also globally. You know, so I think it's definitely fair to say that, look, this test did not reflect the economic downturn that was seen as a result of COVID. What I think is important, though, to keep in mind, though, is, you know, the banks have been running economic scenarios now for the best part of a decade. And every one of these scenarios is different. You know, so banks have been asked to stress for lower interest rates, for higher interest rates, for a collapse of activity in emerging markets, for a collapse in commodity prices. And I think, look, it's impossible to really ever perfectly envisage what is going to precede an economic downturn. The key thing around stress testing, though, is to make sure that banks are actively thinking about the capital that they're running with and about the risks that they have on their balance sheet and around what their plan B is if you do have a severe economic downturn. You know, so I think even though the banks didn't prepare for this exact economic downturn, 
They have prepared for something similar in the past, and even under the scenario they were given in January, which is this very sharp economic contraction that results in a rapid pickup in unemployment, a significant pickup in volatility in financial markets, and as a result of that, a pickup in credit losses. So the results of the tests are now in. Big picture, what do you think it means for the ability of the banks you look at to manage their capital going forward? Did they get as much freedom as they would have liked? You know, so look, I think if you look at the results of the test, it was actually pretty encouraging. I mean, so, you know, you put these banks through this period of severe economic stress, and even after building in that stress, and even after building in dividends for the next year, the banks had $140 billion of excess capital. To put that in perspective, $140 billion of excess capital would support well in excess of a trillion dollars of loan growth in the US, which is greater than 10% of total loans outstanding. You know, so even in a period of stress, what this test showed is that pretty much every single bank had excess capital and that there is significant capital to support loan growth and demand from financial institutions for access to liquidity. And I think that was very encouraging. So looking back at the market's reaction to this, how do investors think about the results of this round and how do they view bank stocks going forward? So I think the market liked the results of the test. I think what caused the sell-off in bank stocks was really two things. The first is that the banks are going to have to resubmit their stress tests this year and we weren't given the exact scenario, but clearly it's going to be worse than the one that was given in January. So really, I think what the market wanted was closure around what is the capital requirement for the banking industry over the next 12 months. We didn't get that. In effect, what we got is what the capital requirement is going to be for the banking industry over the next three to six months. But then there's going to be another test, which is going to result in a different capital requirement. And the market obviously dislikes uncertainty. The second thing is the Fed did impose some additional restrictions on banks' ability to pay dividends. So if a dividend in any one quarter exceeds the average of the last four quarters worth of net income, you as a bank will not be able to pay it. You know, so there is an additional test that's been added around dividends that we think will probably result in more banks either reducing or canceling their dividend over the next six months than perhaps the market had initially envisaged. So you and I have talked about the global financial crisis and the impact it had on banks. Last time, banks were very much at the center of the crisis and and required direct government support in the U.S. and and elsewhere. So far, that has not been the case in this downturn. The Fed's done some things for markets, which have helped banks, but not directly. Why did the banks hold up better in, in the middle of this crisis? You know, I think they held up better because of the global financial crisis. So so obviously, if you go back to 2008, the banks were really seen in some ways as the reason that you had this severe economic downturn. And look, I think the reason that there was that view is because the banks went into the 2008 global financial crisis in an over-levered position, i.e. they didn't have enough capital. They had very high concentrations of risk especially in mortgages and in real estate. And when the crisis hit, the banks were really forced to delever at the same time that the economy was shrinking. Now, so really, I think there was a view at the time, which was, look, the banks are actually amplifying this economic downturn because they're not in a position to continue lending and to continue providing liquidity to financial markets. And Coming out of 2008, I think everybody agreed the rule book needed to change. And in 2010, you had Dodd-Frank 
And that introduced a whole set of additional regulations that banks had to adhere to, both in terms of capital, but also in terms of how they think about liquidity. I would say, look, the most important change coming out of 2008 was the stress test. Banks have really been forced to think every year, okay, what happens if there is this severe economic shock to my business? What happens to my capital levels? What happens to my liquidity? And how do I prepare for it? And I think the reason the banks have held up better this time around than in 2008 is the banks are really the only industry that have really had to think about a scenario similar to what we're currently going through, which is that you get an external shock that results in a very significant contraction in economic activity in a very short period of time that results in a significant pickup in loan losses and volatility and make sure that they can withstand that shock. In effect, what we've had over the course of this year is a real-life stress test. Effectively, what we have gone through is unemployment you know, going to 10 to 15, potentially even to 20%. You obviously had a very significant pickup in terms of financial market volatility, and the banks have proven that they can withstand that type of shock and still provide credit to the real economy. I think one of the most important, I think, statistics is that in the first three months of this year, Bank balance sheets, at least the largest banks, expanded by 10%. So banks really could operate as a stabilizing influence over the course of this economic downturn by providing credit to companies that were obviously in desperate need of access to liquidity. And I think that's been really important because, as I said earlier, banks in 2008 amplified the economic shock. This time, you could argue that they've operated much more as a stabilizing influence. Well, maybe the banks can export their stress test expertise to other industries going forward. That could be a new business line. Later this month, we'll be getting the earnings reports from the major U.S. banks and foreign banks. What what are you expecting to see across the larger banks in this environment? It's still pretty volatile. Yeah. So I think what we're going to see is a continuation of what we saw in the first quarter, which is loan loss provisions will continue to be very high. You know, so the banks set the loan loss provisions at the end of March. At that point, I think the view was unemployment was likely to peak at 10%. You know, most banks now, I think, have a view that unemployment is going to peak at a higher number. You know, so reserves for loan losses are set on a forward-looking basis. So they will be increasing their reserves, reflecting the fact that unemployment is likely higher than what they had envisaged. But against that, this high level of volatility in financial markets has translated to a high degree of activity in capital markets. And as a result, I do think that pre-provision operating profit, so the the amount a bank earns before they have to book a provision, is going to continue to be actually quite good. So earnings overall will obviously be weak, reflecting the reserves that they need to build. But I don't think that many banks are going to lose money at the bottom line. And I think banks will actually continue to see capital ratios stay around the level that they were in the first quarter. All right. Well, we'll have more to discuss after earnings. Richard, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot. That's all for this week's Markets Update on exchanges at Goldman Sachs. And in case you missed it, check out our other episode this week with Kristen Olson on what's driving growth in alternative capital markets. Thanks for listening. Hope everyone has a great long weekend. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, July 1st in the year 2020. Thanks for listening. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. 
Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.